Hi, thanks for joining us once again in our study in the book of Numbers. We've entitled this The Wilderness Wanderings. And today we're going to talk about the rest of the story. Now, for many of you who are my age or older, maybe some a little bit younger, when you hear the rest of the story, you think of this man. You think of Paul Harvey. You think of that news radio broadcast anchor who would often share those personal anecdotes and stories and leave you hanging, share the news. And then he's like, now that you've heard the news, let me tell you the rest of the story. And he would share that part of the story that was the cliffhanger or the switch or the the reversal. Well, since his passing, somebody has uh, recently taken that up. His name is Mike Rowe over the last few years. And he's even written a book called The Way I Heard It. And he has a podcast uh, of the same title. And he'll often tell the story and he'll finish up and he says, well, that's the way I heard it. And I enjoy listening to that podcast. In fact, recently I was listening to one and uh, it talked about this individual by the name of Georg George Ritter, who was a U-boat commander in the First World War. He was for uh, an Austrian U-boat commander. And as he was there, when he would sink ships, and there was one time he talks about in his memoirs, that he sunk a ship and he looked and he just thought, he's like, where is the honor in this kind of battle? Where is the glory? He would often say, I would rather be fighting. He said this to his first mate, in fact. He said, I'd rather be fighting uh, in a trench where at least you can hear the wounded groan and you can uh, see the wounded rage. You know who you were fighting against. But down here, he said, we drown masses of men like cold-blooded cowards. And he, he really did. When you look at his history of what he did, he was known during that First World War of sinking 13 Allied boats, which drowned thousands of sailors. And he, he got to the point where he, he struggled because he said these men would never see the face of the man who sealed their fate. And that weighed heavily on, on Georg Ritter. He struggled with that. He did not like that. And it, it just really battled but he became an Austrian war hero. In fact, he was eventually awarded the, the highest honor of, of, of warfare in Austria. And he became this historic war legend in Austria. Uh, in fact, he got the, the title, the nickname, the Dread of the Adriatic. And as World War I finished, he moved back to Austria after it was annexed and everything happened with the World War I. And he just started living his life. In fact, he got married. He got married to his first wife. They had seven children, and she eventually died of scarlet fever. Ironically, her dad was the uh, individual who invented the torpedo, which he used on those U-boat subs that he did not like. But uh, he married her. They had seven children. She died of scarlet fever. And then his second wife, they had three children together, and then she eventually passed away as well. Well, as World War II began to creep around the corner, it was going to be obvious that the Germans and the Nazis were going to want Georg to fight for them, to be part of their war machine. But he really wrestled with the honor of his previous commission. He really struggled with all those years wanting to not have killed all those people. And now he's wrestling with, do I really want to do that? And do I want to do that for the Nazis? Do I want to be captaining a U-boat Again, and you can read all about this in his memoirs, The Last Salute, Memories of an Austrian U-Boat Commander. And you know, if we, left, if we left the story there, most of us would probably say, I have no clue who Georg Ritter is. I don't know who the dread of the Adriatic is. I don't know a whole lot about this guy. But I would wager to say that most of us probably know a lot more about this individual than, than we would, some, for some men, probably want to admit. 
It's because of a musical. We know Georg Ritter by this guy, Georg Ritter von Trapp, or just Captain von Trapp. And as the story unfolded with The Sound of Music, I had often wondered, I love The Sound of Music, and I still have my man card, and that's okay, I love it. Uh, I had often wondered, like, what was it? Why did this guy who was in the military for all these years all of a sudden not want to be in the military? Was it just because he hated the Nazis? But there was more to it. He had been wrestling with this for years. And that was the reason, the story behind he, him taking his family and eventually the, uh, the governess that he fell in love with, the third wife, Maria, and getting out and eventually making their way to America where it becomes a musical and stories and legends and I mean, songs are written about this individual. But we really didn't know the rest of the story. And sometimes knowing the past helps us in the present. Knowing those parts of the story. In fact, we like to look back. We like memorials. We like memories. In fact, we do it all the time right now at Christmas time. I, I, would, I would guess that probably many of you listening have some sort of nativity or something in your house that is reminding you of Christmas and reminding you of what Jesus Christ did in coming to earth as that baby in order to be eventually die for our sins. We like the reminders of the positive pasts. But sometimes, like Ritter, we're haunted by the tragedies of the past. We don't like to look back at the negative things. We just like to keep things white, tidy, and clean. In fact, knowing the past, it can really remind us and help us to not make the mistake, same mistakes again. Whether it's individually, whether it's on a national level, whether it's for all of humanity. It's why, it's why some of those memorials around our nation are so important. It's why we shouldn't be tearing down Civil War memorials and monuments. Yes, it reminds us of tragedy of slavery. Yes, it reminds us of the brutality of the Civil War. But yet it reminds us that we don't want to go back to that. And it keeps that at the forefront, not to erase it out of history. Same thing is true for many of us. We want, we're, a number of us when we were in Boston with Toby... He took us to the Holocaust Memorial. That's those towers on the right there. And every individual who was, who was killed in the Holocaust, their names that they have record of, their names are etched in the glass there. And it's just a sobering reminder of the past, but we don't often like to be reminded of the negative past. And yet the, the negative past reminds us of the mistakes that we've made and the past that we should not travel again. And that's what's going to happen here in Numbers chapter 16 in the second part, especially in verses 36 to 40. Let's put it this way. Imagine you were a, a young Jewish boy. And as a young Jewish boy, for the first time, you're going with your father to the tabernacle. And as you enter into the tabernacle, the first item you see, you see the priests working all around this, this large altar, the, the altar, the brazen altar. And as you look and you watch them, you notice that it is bronze. It is covered by plates of bronze. And you're looking at it and you say, Dad, why is this altar covered in bronze? Why is it like that? And as a father, you look at the son and you're like, you know, that, that's a really good question, son. Let me tell you. In fact, let me tell you about what happened in the past. There was a great rebellion that occurred. There was an individual by the name of Korah. He was a Levite. 
and he wanted to be a priest. And while these individuals were in the wilderness, they decided that they were going to rebel against God. And many of them did that. In fact, he says to his son, there were three individuals. There was a man by the name of Korah. And he had 250 others who followed him that they felt that they should be the priests. That they were so frustrated by that that they began to complain. And they rebelled against God and his leadership and the plan for the priesthood. And the son looks at the father and he's, he's amazed and listening. And the, the father says, you know, only Aaron's line is to be the priest. We need to remember that. And he says, Korah wasn't the only one in those 250. There was another group from the tribe of Reuben. There was a man by the name of Datham and another one by the name of Abiram. And they rebelled against God. And they rebelled against Moses, our great forefather. And they rebelled against Aaron and their leadership. And they said that they were not good leaders, that they were not fit to lead. And so they, even at one point, Moses told these men to come up to the tabernacle and they refused. They said, we want nothing to do with you, Moses. We're not going to come up to you. We're not going to acknowledge your authority and your leadership. And those individuals were ultimately rebelling against God. And so as the father tells the son around this altar, as they're looking at it, he's saying, let me tell you about Korah. Let me tell you about Datham. Let me tell you about Abiram and these individuals who rebelled against the authority and the structure that God had put into place. And he looks and he says, you know what's going to happen? God always punishes rebellion. He punishes sin. And that's what he's going to do. And that's why the altar is bronze. And the son looks at the, the, the father and he's a little confused. And so the father may look and say, well, it's a reminder. In fact, in our Bible, if you look in verse 40, it says, it is to be a memorial unto the children of Israel. So he, the father looks and says, the, the bronze around the altar here, the fact that it is plated in bronze is a memorial. A memorial that we must never disrespect, distrust, or disobey God. That his ways are the best. That his leadership is the authority that God has placed in our life. And we should be trusting them. We should not be disobeying what God has established. And so as he teaches the son about the history of Korah and Datham and Abiram, he's, he's using the altar as an object lesson and as a memorial. And he looks at him and says, do you know what happened to these men who disobey God? Who distrusted him? Who rebelled against him? Do you know what, do you know what happened to them? He says, the mouth of the earth opened up against those who opened their mouth against God and rebelled. And then those 250 men who had their censers and were out and were trying to take the priesthood that was not theirs, God sent fire down from heaven and consumed them right there where they were. And you can imagine this young child just looking in utter amazement and, and maybe terror and awe that God dealt with rebellion and God dealt with sin and God dealt with the disrespect and the distrust and the disobedience of these individuals. And he looks at them and he says, and when they, all of them were consumed, all laying around them, if we see that in verse 38, all the censors were still there. God consumed the individuals, but these censors were left behind. They were used to offer incense to the Lord. And when they were being used by that, then what happened was when the fire of God came upon them, it purged them and God's holy fire purged those censors. 
And now God tells Eliezer, the son of Aaron, he said, I want you to take those censers and I want you to beat them out into plates that are going to cover the altar. And when you cover the altar, it is going to be used for a memorial in verse 40 for the children of Israel that no stranger that is not of the seed of Aaron should come forward. It, it highlights, it reminds us, as he's telling his son, of the supremacy of Aaron's priesthood. That our priests in Jewish worship are supposed to come from the line of Aaron, not from anyone else. It reminds us that the tabernacle is a sacred place, that when we enter in, we should not be disobedient, distrustful, disrespecting God. We should not presume and say, we can have whatever we want and we can do it our way, but we need to come the way that God expects us to come. It reminds us to not act like Korah. Look at what, it, I mean, it directly says, and, and this is not popular in our day and age, to look and say, you know, when somebody makes a mistake to, or sins, to say, don't act like so-and-so. We're like, oh, we don't want to do that. We don't want to, we don't want to be too, too harsh. But look at what God says. God says in verse 40, that you, you be not as Korah and his company. He says, this was such an abomination that we're going to set up a permanent memorial here to remind you, don't do that. Now, if it was in our day and age, we'd look and go, well, we don't like that, so let's tear it down. Let's desecrate it and let's pull it. No, God says it is going to be there. It is going to be a sacred and holy reminder of the tragic past, that we should not repeat the actions of the past, but we should learn from them. Now, obviously, this story that I'm sharing of the boy and the, the father, it doesn't come directly from Scripture. And yet, this is what God intended for the for the, the, memo- or the memorial, the, the altar, that when people would see it, they would be reminded not to disrespect God, not to distrust God, not to disobey God, not to rebel against him, not to complain, not to act like Korah, Datham, and Abiram. And so God has Eliezer do that. And we see that in verses 30, 36 and following is what happens. And that's where we pick up in our, in our study of what is happening. God, God gives us a little bit of the backstory to the covering of the altar with bronze. Now, whether it was being replated, it was already bronzed, and then it got replated with maybe decorative plating, or that it was not bronzed before and now it is bronze, we're not sure. But we know that the bronze aspect and the plating that is there is from the censors of these 250 rebellious individuals who sided with Korah. And they are to be used as a memorial. And then you'll notice in verse 37, it also says that Eliezer was supposed to uh, take the censers out of the burning and then scatter the fire yonder, for they are hollowed. He says, take the fire, and I want you to take it out. Get, get, get it out away from the people. Take it outside yonder, outside the camp. Why does he do that? Well, commentators have a couple reasons, mainly two one is that he did not, God did not want the individuals to be contaminated by the remains of the dead that would have been in the fire. They didn't want people coming and touching it or being around it. Eliezer was going to have to be, he was going to have to go through a purification because of his proximity and closeness to the dead as a priest. It was going to have to happen. The other reason too that commentators hold to is that God did not want anyone to come in and take that fire, which he used 
for a holy consecrated purpose to bring about judgment and his wrath and to, to, to consume those individuals and to hallow or purify those censors. He did not want people coming in and using his holy fire for just a common everyday occurrence in their home. He wanted it to be sanctified, separate. And so he tells Eliezer to remove it from camp so that it is not, that, that which is holy is not just made mundane and commonplace. But there is a reverence and a separation that is to be between God's holiness and our humanity and our sinfulness. And so God has Eliezer take the, take the fire out, take the censers, beat them into plates. And you would think at this point, I mean, when you look through all of that's going to happen up to this point, that whole situation with Korah, Datham, Abiram, the rebellion, the consuming of the earth, the fire coming down, all of that happening, you would think with all the shock and the awe and the terror and all the apocalyptic facets of the, that are happening here, that Israel's primed to change. That it is time for revival. But we're too far into the book of Numbers, aren't we, to, to know that? We know what's going to happen. We know what their nature is. And it really is our nature too, isn't it? How many times do we go through the same thing, battle the same sins, progressively go through and go through and we find ourselves right back in the trough, right back eating where we did not want to be eating. We see rebellion happen again. Notice in verse 41, but on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured. It is the, the nation complaining and grumbling at what has just happened. Not reverence, but rebellion. And so as the people retaliate with more complaining, we're going to see that the virus of complaint creeps in. The, the, complaining is far more contagious than corona. I mean, it is, it is potent. And we talked last time about how dangerous complaining is. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on that again. But the complaint is directed. Notice where it's directed. It is directed against Moses and Aaron. It says, they murmured, verse 41, against Moses and Aaron. Underline that phrase. Because they're going to murmur directly against Moses and Aaron, which we know ultimately, as we've talked about, is, a, is directed toward God. The complaint is toward God. But look at what they murmur, what they say. They say to Moses and Aaron, you have killed the people of the Lord. You have done that. Obviously, these people had a severe misunderstanding of what it meant to be one of God's people. They thought just because they were a Jew that they were good. Just because they go to church, they're okay. There is so much more to the relationship with God than just being in proximity or just having a nationality, or being born into a certain family. This is about that relationship with God. God is the one here who enacted the judgment. Moses didn't call the fire down. Moses didn't split the earth. He had nothing to do. God did all of that. In fact, do you remember back in uh, verse 21? 20, yeah, 21 and 22. If it was not for Moses and Aaron interceding in verse 21 when God says, I'm going to consume them. And verse 22, they fall on their face. All of these people would have been dead already. God was ready to wipe out the nation. And yet the intercession of Moses and Aaron stayed that. And these individuals are looking, this, the nation is now at the point where they're so frustrated with God and Moses and Aaron that they are just there murmuring and complaining. 
but it escalates and moves forward. Remember, it was they were complaining against Moses and Aaron. Now look in verse 42. Verse 42, it says, And it came to pass when the congregation is now gathered against Moses and Aaron. It is escalating to a coup. They're ready to kill, to overthrow, once again, take over as they have tried before. And just as they have tried before, what happens? God steps in. He intervenes on behalf of his leaders, on behalf of the righteous. God is always protecting the righteous. And verse 42, it says, They looked toward the tabernacle of congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Whether it's, it's the cloud coming down or intensifying again, the people knew God was present and that God was going to make the, the statements and God was going to interact and God was going to say, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to set the matter straight. And we see judgment about to happen again. Do you see this cycle? People rebel. God is going to judge. And what happens? Moses and Aaron intercede. They intervene. Verse 44, it talks about, And the Lord spake to Moses, saying, Get you up from this congregation, that I may once again do what? I'm going to consume them. We see in verse 21, that word. Verse 26, verse 35, and now again in verse 45. I am going to consume them in a moment. It's going to be short. It's going to be quick, and I am done. And Moses and Aaron, what do they do? They fell upon their faces. The people have provoked God. And Moses and Aaron fall on their face for the ones who just wanted to rebel, maybe kill, to get rid of them. The ones who have been complaining and uttering murmurings against them, they're still going to pray. Again, we've talked about it. The the pattern of righteousness by these two men for those who do not treat them well, that they treat their enemies with great respect, that they are kindly praying for those who despitefully use them. And we have Aaron and Moses interceding for them. And God's wrath against sin, we, we notice here, it's all-consuming. Everyone at this point is guilty. And once again, Moses and Aaron intercede. And verses 46 through 50, we're going to have the, 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 uh, the central point of the passage. Because the passage is going to actually extend into chapter 17. We'll talk about that next time. But you have Aaron here who is going to stand between. Usually it is Moses who stands between the God and people. But now we are going to have Aaron standing between the living and the dead. Look what, look what happens here. Moses is going to, they fall on their face. This is not going to be an extended prayer meeting. This is not going to be a long, let's pray for the sinful souls of humanity and intercede on behalf of Israel. They fall on their faces, then what happens? And Moses said to Aaron, take a censer, put fire therein from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly unto the congregation and make an atonement for them. He looks and says, we've got to move here. We've got to make an atonement. Now the atonement that's here is not a blood sacrifice. It is the word, it's, it's the word for atonement, but it has the general idea of to avert the wrath of God. He says, on your way, you be praying to God for the, and intercede on behalf of them. Ask for the atonement, the forgiveness of their sins. You go and you do that. There was no innocent bystander at this point. The entire congregation is going to be wiped out. And because they've all joined in the sin of rebellion against God. And because of that, there is going to be judgment. 
<coughs> excuse me, there is a guilt among all of them. You look at that and you're like, wow, that sounds like humanity. We've all rebelled against God. And because we have all rebelled against God, we are all under the same condemnation. We are all facing judgment, the wrath of God that is upon us because of our sin. So Moses says, go quickly. Why? Why right away? Because the plague, according to verse 46, has already begun. He says, the wrath of God has gone out. The plague is begun. Aaron, you got to go quick. This isn't a time for, for uh, just taking your time and, and dilly-dallying around. You go. You get out there. Go quickly. And so Aaron has to make the decision to go. He runs headlong toward the people and the plague. You can almost see what's happening. This plague is coming toward them. We don't know what the plague is. Is it this huge cloud? Is it dust in the air? Is it a, an angel that is coming? And we don't know what the plague is. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we know this. As the plague is approaching, Aaron is running headlong toward that plague. You can almost picture the people running this way and Aaron taking that, that sensor with him going forward right toward the plague. And I read this and I thought it was really, really, really interesting. It said, the faithful act of one man carrying out the task appointed to him by God had a life-giving impact on the fate of many. Millions of Israelites are, are in trouble. Hundreds of thousands facing it. And this one man faithfully doing what Moses and what God had told him to do, he runs, he intercedes, and he stands between the death plague that is coming and all the people who are living. And he stands there in mediation, and what happens is the plague is stopped. But not before some do die. 14,700, the Bible tells us in verse, uh, verse 49, that those individuals die. And yet the plague is stopped, and then Aaron returns to Moses and the tabernacle. And as I, I look through this passage, and I think about it, God is the one who establishes the way to him. God is the one. That, Korah had issues with God's authority structure. Datham and Abiram had issues with the authority that was there. But God was the one who established the order. God is the one who established the way to him. In fact, all of chapter 16 and 17 highlight that from the Jewish perspective, especially in the Jewish religion. The way to God was through the priests. The priests were the intercessors, the mediators that were there. They were present in chapter 16 and 17 are going to highlight that Aaron is, and Aaron's family and lineage, they were to be the priests. And so it highlights that, and that he, that is the one that God has appointed. When you come to God, whether a Jew then or us now, we must come to God in the way that he has revealed. It is not by my own thoughts. It is not by my own whims and wishes. It is by the way that God has revealed through his word. It is to be only on his terms I can't make my own terms. I can't look like, you know, Cor and say, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to become my own priest and I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. I must come to God on his terms. I must come to God in the way that he has made possible. For the Old Testament Jews, they would bring that sacrifice. For us, we come through that sac the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
The way that it was made possible for us to be able to enter into heaven, for us to have that relationship with God was through and is through Jesus Christ. The question often arises, do all the roads lead to heaven? I mean, really, does it really matter? I was in a conversation this week with an individual and he's like, well, I'm a Christian, but not the same as you. And we all sort of have that same, you know, it's all the same thing anyway. We're all Christians and we're all going to end up in the same place. It's like, no, no, you're not. It's not all the same. Do, 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 is that the truth? Society tells us that it is. It's not a big deal. You practice what you want. I'll practice what I want. If I don't want to practice anything, so be it. But, you know, we're all good and it'll all work out in the end. However, apart from God and the way that God has chosen, all those roads lead to a consuming fire because God will deal with sin. God deals with it through wrath. And I don't want to face the wrath of God. I don't want my friends to face the wrath of God. I don't want you to face that wrath. And so therefore, we must understand that God has established a way, that God has established a path through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for us to be able to have that relationship with him. That's why Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, he says, God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He provided that way, the testimony that was given at just the right time. Paul writes, and he understands that God has revealed a way for us to be able to be saved for us to be able to have that relationship, to come to the knowledge of truth. That way is through Jesus Christ. That's why Christmas is so blessed. Because it was the beginning of that, that, that way that God had created, that Christ left heaven to come to earth, to be with us. But not just to be a cute little baby, but to grow up and to be that perfect sacrifice that would one day die on the cross to atone for to make payment, to avert the wrath of God, to stand between God's plague of death and us being able to enter into a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And so even though Moses and Aaron were great intercessors, they were not sufficient. They could not bring spiritually defiled, sinful, wicked people before a holy God. They didn't have the ability to do that. They could not even uh, bring them into the promised land because of their sinfulness. They were not perfect. They were not that sacrifice, that perfect lamb that we needed. That's why 1 Corinthians doesn't say in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, verse 22, not 15. uh, No, it is 15. Doesn't say, as in Adam all die. And as in Moses and Aaron, all will be made alive. It doesn't say that. What does the verse say? It says, as in Adam all die, but as in Christ, the second Adam, all shall be made alive. It is only through Christ. It is not through Moses or Aaron. They were good intercessors for the people, but their intercession pointed forward. It pointed beyond them to the one who was yet to come. The one who is the great mediator. The one who is the great intercessor. The one who is the greatest high priest. Jesus Christ. The one who you and I need. 
the one who all of humanity needs, the one that they need to hear about and understand the hope of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took upon himself all the guilt that we have inherited from Adam and all the guilt that we have that comes from our own sinfulness, that flows out of our own sinfulness. Christ took that upon himself. He atoned for it. He covered it with his blood. He provided us with the way to be able to enter into that relationship with Jesus Christ or with with God the Father. But Paul says, because he understood all that, he understood that humanity needs Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in the rest of that passage in 1 Timothy. He says, For this reason I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a faithful and true teacher of the Gentile. He said, My livelihood, what I am doing, it's about the gospel. It is about teaching. It is about proclaiming. It is about letting people know what Jesus Christ did. He says, that is consuming to me. God's wrath is all consuming against sin. But what is consuming me is sharing the gospel with telling people about Jesus Christ and what he has done. God asks us and God expects us to stand between the dead and the living. In other words, he expects us to be sharing the gospel, to run headlong. God asks us and expects us to do this. Humanity has joined the rebellion of sin against God. Therefore, we understand there is judgment that must be meted out for those sins. It's a matter of spiritual life and death. Let me me go back to that. Uh, Think about this for a second. We hold to those truths doctrinally that all of humanity is spiraling downward in rebellion against God. And because of their sinfulness, there is going to be everlasting judgment. There is a definite spiritual battle. There is a difference between those who are spiritually living and those who are spiritually dead. And Aaron runs headlong toward the death, in order to save many. What about us? If we truly believe that, what are we doing with the gospel? What are we doing with our lives? Are we proclaiming the gospel? That's why Paul says again in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, God sends us out, you and I, as ambassadors of Christ for Christ, on his behalf. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, of how to take that person who is spiritually dead and how to help them have a reconciled relationship with God. It is through the gospel. We must be running headlong into those places that people need the gospel. We're commissioned to intercede on behalf of our friends, on behalf of our family, our neighbors, to set a line between life and death. It's a beautiful picture. Aaron Aaron becomes this line in the sand, separating the death and the life. And as he stands there interceding, there is a definite distinction there's a, I was reading an article by a man by Paul, named Paul Tillich. 
And he says this, he says, we must love people consistently and persistently with everything we have. But if ultimately choose to reject you and ultimately God, then we're going to have to be okay with that. Now that, that doesn't sit well because we don't like to be rejected. But we know that they're ultimately rejecting God. But he goes on a little bit further. And he says this, he says, we often ask ourselves, well then, because I don't want to be rejected, how can I communicate the gospel so that others will accept it? What do I need to do? That they'll, they'll accept the gospel. And he says, there's no method for this. Because if there, was an, if there was a direct method that if I presented it this way, everybody's going to accept, it, it would, well, what difficulty would there be? I'd just do that little form and it would be perfect. But he says, to communicate the gospel means this, putting it before the people so that they are able to decide for it or against it. It is presenting the truth of what Jesus Christ did. It is presenting the truth of my sinful humanity, that there is wrath that is going to be meted out against me because of my sin, because of your sin. And Christ steps in and uh, takes our sin upon him, that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we turn from our sinfulness and we turn and trust in Jesus Christ, we can be saved. But we must believe in him. We must believe that he died, that he buried, that he has risen again. And leaving that with people and saying, you have to personally accept Jesus Christ. You must decide to believe in him or to reject him. There's no, there's no middle grounds. And drawing that, that line in the sand, the Christian gospel is a matter of decision. It is to be accepted or rejected. All that we who communicate the gospel can do is make possible a genuine decision. This rebuked me this how many times I'd be like, well, I don't want to share it yet because I don't think it's the ideal time. Or I'll, I'll get close to it, but I, I, don't want to, I don't want to push to the point of they need to really think about a decision. I want them to just come to it on their own. And yet Aaron runs headlong and draws a line in the sand. He stands between life and death. And are there too many times in my life, and, and there are, I can't even say are there, there are. There have been too many times in my life where I've gotten close to that point of having somebody really have to think about the decision of asking Jesus Christ, and I've backed off. Because I was fearful of being rejected. Because I was fearful of losing a friendship. But I must, I must share the gospel. If I truly believe that that person, if they die, and they're unsaved, are going to end up in the pit of hell facing God's wrath for all of eternity. And I'm too worried about bringing them to a point of decision. Where is my Christianity? Where is my gospel living life? I need to be. I'm not talking about buttonholing somebody and like, I'm not going to let you go until you pray this prayer. But bringing them to a point of, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with the gospel? Have you thought about this? And how do, what do you think you should do? How do you think you should respond? However you want to phrase it, but we need to bring people to points of decision in our life. Do you notice Aaron's actions in this passage? Aaron uh, had to take the intercession to where the people were dying. He didn't stay in his huddled mass with Moses back in the religious comfort of the tabernacle. 
knowing that he would be okay because God already said, separate from them and you're going to be fine. No, he runs headlong toward the people, where the people were dying. We cannot sit in our church and just be comfortable with the fact that we're all okay here and there are millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, one or two people next door that are dying and need Jesus Christ. It was risky business for the high priest. He was running toward death and toward people who were dying. He was going to potentially become ceremonially unclean. And yet he chose that he was going to risk it. Why? Because he counted the cost and he believed souls were worth it. We're afraid to risk rejection. We're afraid to risk a friendship. We're afraid to step outside and to start sharing, to pass out a track, to bring people to church, to encourage people. Moses noticed there was an urgency. He says, go quickly. Get out there. There is an urgency to the gospel. How are we responding to that? We have been talking about and we hear about it. And you see posts and you see blogs and you see Facebook posts and you see Instagram posts about, ooh, is coronavirus one of the signs of the end times? Are, are we in the end times? What's going to happen to America? It seems like it's falling apart. We must be going toward end times biblical prophecy. And we can get so excited that we can lay out biblical prophecy. And we know what's going to be happening in the, in the tribulation, or we think we do. And we can lay all that out. But let's, let's be honest. If the timeline and the end times are, are looking and the signs of the time are saying, it sure seems like... Christ could be coming back. <clears throat> the rapture could be happening. We can take the perspective of, whoo -hoo, all right, good, get me out of here, God, and I just want to go home. I'm ready. And we are, aren't we? We're looking forward to that. But what about all the people around us? What about our friends? What about our coworkers? What about our neighbors? What about those individuals who need Jesus Christ, who are spiritually dead, and I am called to stand in between the living and the dead and to share the gospel with them? I think so many of us think like, oh, let's just get to 2021, we'll get a big reset, everything will go back to normal. Obviously, coronavirus is going to stop in 2021, just like everybody thought it would be done after the day after the election. No, it's, it's here. Life is different. It's going. We need to be sharing the gospel. We need to stand to go with urgency, to completely tell other people about Christ. As we start looking at this new year, as we start looking at Christmas, let's tell the rest of the story. Let's go. Let's tell people the rest of the story. Tell them about the hope you have and why, though you're concerned about corona, it doesn't dominate you because you have a hope in Jesus Christ. Because you know that if you were to pass, that there is something greater. Tell people about the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Tell them about, if you're really into the signs of the time and the rapture and all, tell them about what happens with the tribulation, but tell them the rest of the story, how to escape that. Tell them about the Christmas story, but don't stop with the little baby in the manger. Tell them the rest of the story. We need to. 
not for the sake of getting a bigger church, not for the sake of putting a notch in our belt. We need to tell people the story of Jesus Christ. Tell them the gospel because the plague of sinfulness and the wrath of God is coming upon humanity and we have the answer and God has called us as ambassadors to stand between life and death. This is not just called for a pastor to do. This is called for me as a believer to do. It is called for you as a believer to be doing. Let's go. Let's, let's act like Aaron. Let's act like Moses. Let's intercede on behalf of the people, but not leave it there. Let's run headlong toward those who are dying and those who need Jesus Christ. And let's share the gospel with them. Let's think about that as we go forward into this Christmas season, the new year, and into 2021. Let's go and tell people the rest of the story. Father, I pray that you would help us to look at your word and to share it and to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ because of what we believe. Because we believe in the truthfulness that sin is going to be punished and that Jesus Christ is the only way to have our sins forgiven and to be able to enter into that relationship with you. Give us courage. Give us boldness. And Lord, give us fruit. Help people to be saved. We know that you, you have said that you are not willing that any should perish. That you want people, you want everyone to come to a knowledge of you and an understanding of salvation. Lord, give us fruit in our congregation and in our lives for people to get saved and to trust in you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great day.